Oh, yeah, let's get it. Monday, January 11th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. We are back. You've been following the podcast for a while. Yes, this is new music. What you're hearing is the song Machine Gunner, courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song. It was written by Marine veteran Mick McElhinney, Nashville songwriter Jason Siever, and Michael Duncan. Machine Gunner. Bullets fly day and night rain. Super And it is our new anthem for 2021. Now, I was not a machine gunner, but I think it's got a lot in the lyrics that many can identify with. And I don't know, it's got a great vibe. Hope you had a great holiday season. Got a lot to catch up on. Gotta say you all have been great over the hiatus and supporting the podcast. And as we started the year uh, on January 1st and January 2nd, we were in the top 20 in our category on Apple Podcasts. And you did that with your listens, your ratings, your reviews, and with your subscriptions. So thank you. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome to the show. Before we get into responding to reviews, I got to let you all know, it is the 30th anniversary where all five military branches joined a coalition to push out Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait in support of Operation Desert Storm. This entire month, VA will profile these veterans and tell their stories in honor of the 30th anniversary. Some are already out there on blogs.va.gov. There are a lot of stories, from our Veteran of the Day series to a story about the chocolate chip uniforms, to what the Coasties were doing, to some summaries on some VA benefits and resources that are unique to those veterans. So if you get some time, check them out on blogs.va.gov. Just type in Desert Storm in the search bar. The first link will be a page that has all the links to the stories and resources. Shoot, I'll just say the URL. It's easy enough. It's blogs.va.gov forward slash vantage forward slash the number 30 hyphen years hyphen desert hyphen storm. Received some ratings and two new reviews during our hiatus. Thank you for that. Uh, First one is from Angela Simonson. Says five stars. Host is great. Well, thank you very much. Tanner is a great host, fellow Marine, no surprise. I honestly thought this podcast was going to be VA bureaucracy talk, but it's actually very interesting personal stories of fellow veterans. Thank you for sharing these. Angela, as Marines, you know, we hate bureaucracy and I will do my best to keep it out of the podcast. This is for you, for me, and any other veterans looking for that's something that we're missing when we took off the uniform. It's also a way for me to explore what the VA has to offer Because man, it's huge. And to let you know what I find out. So welcome to Born the Battle. And I hope you stick around and continue to give us feedback. Second review is from Buzz Hazmat. Five stars. Helpful. Clear, succinct information. Delivered in a pace and tone to convey that information. But not put one to sleep. Thank you, I guess. The one critique is that in some parts, it could be quicker. The pause between phrases could be less. Otherwise, very good. Thanks. Buzz Hazmat, I appreciate the feedback. I've also been told that I talk too fast on here as well. 
And I'm glad that you like the info that is provided. As always, if you like what we put together every week, please consider smashing that subscribe button. And then even if you're listening on a different um, platform, leaving a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. In doing so, you'll be able to help push this podcast up in the algorithms, giving more veterans the chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. As for news releases, a lot did get released during the hiatus. You can find them all by typing in VA press releases in your internet search engine of choice. You'll either find our press releases or Virginia's at the top. Either way, we're one of the first two up there. Click, read, and learn about what's going on in VA. For here on the show, we're not going to get too deep into all the uh, to the news releases. We're, gonna, we're just going to hit you with the titles for some of the ones I think that pertain to you. So since we've been on hiatus, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently the formal launch of 1-800-MY-VA-411. And if you want to take the letters out, the numbers are 1-800-698-2411. It is a single access point to all VA contact centers. When dialing 1-800-MY-VA-411, callers have the option of pressing zero to be immediately connected with a customer service agent to answer questions or to provide a warm handoff to an appropriate VA expert. Okay, the second one is titled, VA and the American Lung Association have partnered to help veterans diagnosed with lung cancer. The third one is the VA Welcome Kit has been updated to include with the addition of 10 quick start guides and caregiver resources. VA has also resumed overpayment notifications while continuing to offer relief options to veterans. Overpayments were deferred in 2020 to offer financial relief due to COVID-19. In the news release, there are options to submit requests or call the Debt Management Center directly. We've had a couple of episodes also in our Born the Battle archives that talk about the Debt Management Center and the relief options that they have. And finally, and I'm putting a couple of news releases together, VA has administered over 146,000 COVID vaccine doses at over 120 sites. And the sites are listed in the most recent news release about COVID vaccinations. That's what's been going on here at VA for the past three weeks. The direct URL to read all of these news releases is va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L, all one word. All right, so we have a great first guest for 2021. If you're an avid podcast listener or watch the news from time to time, you might have seen or heard from him already. He's a Navy veteran, and for over his 20 years in Naval Special Warfare, he transitioned from an enlisted SEAL sniper to a junior officer leading assault and sniper teams in Iraq and Afghanistan, to a platoon commander practicing counterinsurgency in the southern Philippines, to commanding a special operations task unit in the most Iranian-influenced section of southern Iraq throughout the tumultuous drawdown of U.S. forces. He is now a New York Times best-selling author and an avid outdoorsman and has recently had one of his books optioned by Chris Pratt to be an upcoming Amazon Prime series. He is Navy SEAL veteran Jack Carr. Enjoy. And we are live. Welcome Jack Carr to Born the Battle. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Absolutely. So uh, for a while when I became host of this podcast... Uh, I didn't have many authors on the show. Uh, 
then we had veterans like Dale Dye mm-hmm. and Jeff Struker, who are veterans that are known for other things, but happen to write professionally on the side. And then we got into G. Michael Hoff, who's a self-made Amazon bestseller and in, a, in the post-apocalyptic genre. Hmm. He got signed by Penguin Random House. And now, you know, within one week, I'm sitting down with two authors, uh, you and John Del Vecchio, author of The 13th Valley. Um, and now authors are some of my favorite interviews because to me, authors, they're the origin of a lot of mediums and storytelling. A lot of times you don't have movies, movie series, TV shows, video games, YouTube clips without really good storytellers that are writers in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all connected. Um, and everybody kind of comes up a different way in this. I know, uh, when, as I was, a from a young, very young age, I was just drawn to reading because my mom was a librarian and we were surrounded by books. So that was just a natural part of uh, growing up. And she really instilled a love of reading in us. Uh, and at the same time I was drawn to, drawn to film. So growing up in the, primarily in the, in the eighties, of course, I was watching things and reading things that pertain to what I wanted to do later in life, which was serve my country in the military, specifically as a SEAL. So uh, I tried to read books that had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. Uh, and a lot of those back then were by guys like Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, uh, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden. And these guys had protagonists typically back then with backgrounds in Vietnam, uh, either in special forces or as SEALs or as um, attached to the CIA or something like that. So I just loved those kind of novels and knew that after my time in uniform, then I'd write novels that I was enjoying uh, like that. So, um, so it's all, it's all connected. And then you get to see some of the adaptations on TV and in movies from things that you've read, or maybe you discover them through the movie and then find the book. So it's all kind of interconnected. I, I appreciate the medium, but I haven't read fiction series since uh, the Redwall series in, when I was in middle school. Redwall, I don't know that one. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of uh, animals that they, you know, uh, I don't know, it's, it's Brian Jocks, and it was a bunch of, he converted animals into like medieval characters. Oh, interesting. So like, uh, what do you call it? The badgers were like the big brutes and, and the rats were the nefarious bad guys <laughs> and, and, and the mice were the heroes of the story. It was, it was... I, but that was like a series that I was actually dedicated to, but I have not been dedicated to a series since. And I've, tr- I've tried to get in a couple. Um, now, John, he wrote the 13th Valley. Did you get a chance to read that when you were younger? I have not read that. Uh, I, I'll send you the link. Uh, apparently that was a big Vietnam book back in the eighties. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought there might've been a link there and he had actually, you know, he was with, uh, I think the hundred and first as a combat correspondent. Oh, so. interesting. Yeah, my, I have a pretty solid collection of uh, of, uh, of books, both fiction and non. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm surprised I haven't uh, heard that one or read of that one. It sounds like, especially if it came out in the '80s, that was right. Uh, that was right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So, Tom Clancy. What what other '80s authors were influential to you? Yeah, David Morrell for sure. So he created the character Rambo back in 1972, um, mm-hmm. and then he wrote a, a trilogy. It starts with Brotherhood of the Rose. Uh, he wrote that in the, the first one in the early 80s, and then the, the second one is Fraternity of the Stone, and then The League of Night and Fog is the third one. But really, he took the the best elements of U.S. spy fiction, which at the time was like your Ludlum, uh, with the best of U.K spy fiction, which was like Jean Le Carré. And so he combined those to really move the genre 
forward. And so Brotherhood of the Rose was a very significant book for me because uh, one, I loved it so much and knew that I was going to try to write novels like that at some point in my life. And then also because there's one sentence in there. Now, the two protagonists are Army Special Forces guys, uh, but there's one sentence in there that talks about SEALs. And uh, that really cemented. I'd already knew that I was going to I was going down that path, but having like the creator of Rambo uh, have this sentence in there about SEALs uh, really cemented me on my path. And now I've gotten to be good friends with David Morrell and he's just an amazing guy. So kind. And he's been so wonderful to me and he blurred my, my third novel and he's just been fantastic. So, um, so yeah, David Morrell was a huge influence. Uh, Nelson DeMille was a huge influence with, especially starting with the charm school is where is my first, uh, the first novel I read uh, of his, um, all the Mark Olden books, um, all the AJ Quinnell books. So all these guys back in the eighties, they had really had an impact on me. And so for kind of, I feel like that they've kind of passed the torch on now. Some of those guys aren't alive anymore, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's my, my job to kind of move, move the genre forward as best I can. But that's outstanding that you've gotten to meet some of them that you read about when you were a kid. And now you get to read, now you get to meet the author. That's gotta be a cool feeling. It's so crazy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's a little surreal. Um, yeah. you, you know, looked up to these guys for so long and, uh, you know, read all their stuff and, and all that. So everybody's just in the genre has been great to me. Everybody in the industry has been so welcoming. And I thought it was going to be the opposite. I thought coming out of the military, you know, I mean, uh, I'm in the SEAL teams, it's a competitive environment. We're all trying to make ourselves the best operators we can possibly be pushing each other day in and day out, trying to earn that trident every day. Yeah. And I thought that, Hey, when I got out that the, the people that were established in pub- in publishing would kind of keep me at arm's length and like view me as competition. And mm. the exact opposite was true. Um, they welcomed me with open arms and everyone has been so helpful and encouraging. And uh, it's just a great place to be. And I think a lot of that's because, uh, you know, most people don't that read don't just pick one book a year. So it's not like you're you know, mm. kind of in, in competition with one each other, with each other. Um, and people that like somebody's book, uh, as soon as they finish it, they want another book that's like that. And or it's in the same genre or has a protagonist with a similar background or, or whatever it may be. So uh, it's been, it's been absolutely incredible to, uh, to, to step into to that world where everybody's so oh. encouraging. Are a lot of them veterans as well? Uh, not too many at the, at the, uh, highest levels, I would, I would say, um, you know, yeah, I mean, there's some, some of them are like Nelson DeMille, uh, he served, um, yeah. uh, Stephen Hunter, he served. Uh, when you go back and look at some of those guys that were writing in the fifties and sixties and seventies, um, most of those guys had some sort of military background. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love going back and studying and some guys that I'd read for years. Um, cause back in the eighties, you couldn't just, or in the nineties, you couldn't just Google somebody, you know, so whatever it said on that book jacket, that's all you knew about them. Uh, yeah. and so now you can like dive in and find out a little bit more about them just online. And you realize, Oh my gosh, look what this person did during world war two, or look what they did, uh, in the Korean war. It's just, just, so I love doing that going back and, and reading all that, um, and finding out some of those backgrounds. That's outstanding. Um, was reading these books, was that, was that the first time that you knew that the military was going to be the next stage of your life? No, I, I, I think I knew that from birth. My grandfather served in World War II and he was killed off Okinawa in 1945. He was a Corsair pilot in the Marine Corps, oh, wow. uh, which was the, the plane for those listening that had the, the gold wings that folded up uh, to make room on aircraft carriers. Um, yeah. And so I grew up with his, uh, the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then. Because if you hit the water with a paper map, it would you know disintegrate in the water. So they had silk maps. Um, mm-hmm. So I had those. I had this, his flag, his wings, uh, his medals, pictures of him and 
Media Squadron. Um, and also there was a show on TV called Black Sheep Squadron starring Robert Conrad. And uh, of course, it was about Pappy Boynton and, uh, you know, kind of a fictionalized version mm -hmm. of some of the the uh, adventures that they they had there in the in the Pacific. Uh, and yeah. I loved watching that with my dad because it was kind of he never met his dad because he was away when uh, he was born when. Uh, his father was away in World War II. Sure. And uh, so that was kind of our connection to him was uh, was watching Black Sheep Squadron. And it was great. I got to meet Pappy Boynton before he passed away in the 80s. Um, no way. And got to meet Robert Conrad, who played him as well. So um, so that was pretty cool for, uh, for a young kid. So I was just drawn to it, I think, because of that connection to my grandfather. So I always knew I was going to serve. I just didn't know quite what that was until – and here's once again is the, uh, the influence of uh, popular culture – is I saw an old black and white movie called The Frogmen. And I saw these guys swimming up over the beach and mm. blowing up obstacles in advance of the conventional force landings and uh, asked my dad, hey, who are these guys? And he said, those are frogmen because that was the name of the movie. And uh, I said, well, what, what are, you know, who are these guys? What are, what's that all about? And he said, yeah. go ask your mother. And my mom being a librarian, we went down to the local library and started doing research. And that's the early 80s. So there's hardly anything written about SEALs back then. There's you know a couple of mentions in a magazine article or a newspaper article or two, uh, a couple of chapters in books. There was actually some uh, beta. <laughs> um, uh, beta cam? Yeah, Betamax uh, videos that uh, talked about Vietnam and had, I know, and had some cool, uh, <laughs> some cool footage from Vietnam. Uh, and so I just, I, I just devoured all of it. And back then you could, you could almost read everything written about seals. Uh, cause there wasn't that much, obviously you couldn't possibly do that today with <laughs> the internet. You could just spend the rest of your life going down those rabbit holes. But back then you could read all of it. Um, and, and then still be starving for more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, so my takeaway from that research with my mom was that, uh, you know, I read that these guys were some of the toughest special operators in the world and that the, the training was some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So, uh, from a very early age, they had me, I think I was seven years old when, um, when I did that research. So ever since then, I just kept my, my eye on that goal of getting to, getting to buds, getting through buds and getting to my SEAL team. And, um, we thought, once we got to our SEAL teams that we'd zip off around the world doing all sorts of secret missions. And uh, truth be told, we'd, we'd cross that quarter deck and they hand you a mop and a broom and, you know, say, hey, new guy, go clean the bathroom. Um, yeah. But uh, we really didn't get to do, most of us anyway, didn't get to do what we thought we would come in, we were coming in to do until after September 11th. And uh, after that, then it was kind of off to the races. Everything changed. Um, 20 years in the Navy, how much was spent, how much of it was spent in SEAL teams? Yeah, all of it. I mean, boot camp, obviously you show up and, you know, you're doing your boot camp stuff. And then right from there, back when I came in, you had to go to an A school first. So get your MOS somewhere. So I went to Intel school at Dam Neck, Virginia. And then, uh, you know, a few weeks after that, you're, you're at Bud's. So, um, so within that first year, you know, within that first six months or so, uh, or maybe seven, eight, whatever it was, I was at Bud's. And then uh, the rest of the time is in Naval Special Warfare up until I got out. Very cool. Very cool. Now you were a you were a Mustang, right? That's right. You started out as a sniper, all the way to commanding special operations uh, task task units out in Iraq. Now, did you spend some time out in Africa as well? Because it says in your book, it says you know doing some research, you spent some time out in Mozambique. Did you spend time down there as well? Because on my last deployment, one of my public affairs Marines that I served with uh, when we were attached to Special Forces MegTafs, he went down there to get some footage of weapons training and whatnot when we were in Siganella. Uh, anti-poaching is a mission that that not many people are familiar with. Is that something that you 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 were a part of during your time? 
not during my time in the military. I went there after. Okay. So uh, I did go to to Mali uh, while I was in the military to do some training down there, um, and before that, I'd been to, to to Kenya and to to Egypt and to Morocco. But uh, after I got out, I got out in the summer of 2016, and I was just putting the final touches on my first novel, The Terminal List. Then didn't have an agent, didn't even know I needed one, didn't have a publishing deal or anything like that. Um, but just writing. Just writing. And I always knew I was going to write a second one because of the John Grisham story where he wrote A Time to Kill first and he couldn't give that novel away. Uh, But instead of quitting, he continued to write and he wrote a little novel called The Firm that uh, then took off. There's a movie with Tom Cruise, of course, and then they go back and republish A Time to Kill, which I think is his uh, probably – well, to me, I think it's his best work or some of his best work anyway. So I always knew that no matter what happened with that first one, if I couldn't get anyone to even look at it, uh, I was going to write that second one. So I was told producers the same thing or or writers that wanted to write for a TV series or films or or had an idea for a series like give them the the one – that that you're not in, you know, that's not your heart in, in on all of it because they're going to change it, and then get that have them come back. Is that what what you were kind of talking about? Uh, no, it was more of along the lines of, hey, if I can't even get someone to look at this thing, kind of like John Grisham with his first book, uh, then I was always going to write a second one, and because uh, you know, because that's the one that might might take off. And if the second one didn't take off, then I was going to reevaluate my life choices. Gotcha. But gotcha. I was always going to write that second one. So as soon as I got out, I was really on a plane to Mozambique to do that research for the second novel, because uh, there's some things you can only get by being on the putting boots on the ground. So uh, so I'm out there for that. And then uh, before I'd finished the second one, um, I went back and this time went to South Africa and trained up an anti-poaching unit down there that was switching over to M4s and clocks. So I have a little bit of experience with those weapon systems. So were you a contractor at that point? No, I just went over and volunteered my time to go over and help uh, train up this uh, uh, this anti-poaching unit over there. So I wow. uh, went over there and did that and uh, learned so much from those guys because a lot of them had kind of caught the tail end of the bush wars. Well, first they'd grown up. Uh, hunting and tracking for food. And then they cut the tail end of the bush war. So then they turned that tracking of animals into tracking humans, tactical tracking. And then they came back from that. And the government was like, wow, we have a lot of people coming back from these bush wars that uh, what are they going to do now? Oh, I know we can bring them into the national police force and kind of turn them into their version of a CSI. So they took this tracking of animals, this tracking of, of humans, and then applied it to tracking in an urban environment um, and not necessarily you know looking at drops of blood or something like that but getting inside the mind of the the, the perpetrator and trying to figure out what his next move was going to be and then a lot of the they aged out of that so a lot of the people that I was working with were older and at this anti-poaching unit but they brought all that experience with them and in the case of where I was in South Africa uh, their job was to protect some of the last rhino on earth so yeah. uh, I learned yeah. a ton from them I got to incorporate that into both my second novel and the third one as well. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. Um, while you were in, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. Mm, well, uh, mentor wise, um, there was a commanding officer that I served under at uh, one of my SEAL teams and he had spent the first year after September 11th deployed to Afghanistan. So okay. we hadn't had really sustained combat operations since Vietnam. You know, we had flashpoints at, uh, like say, Desert One, at uh, Grenada, at Panama, Mogadishu, but we hadn't been in sustained combat operations for quite some time. Yeah. So he spent that first year over there and he brought these certain lessons back to us um, and really made us memorize these four battlefield expectations that uh, 
that he had. Um, and they apply on the battlefield, they apply in life. And he just, uh, just the way he cared and passed those lessons on lessons that he learned in blood downrange, uh, onto the rest of us, uh, certainly made an impression. I haven't forgotten it. And they actually worked their way into my fiction. I italicized them and, and put them into semi fiction as the protagonist is thinking through different, um, different problem sets in the, in the novels. So, um, he's the one that would jump out to me with that question. What are the four pillars? What are the four lessons? Yeah. So he said, always improve your fighting position, uh, exploit all technical and tactical advantages, uh, push SA. And of course, everybody listening to this is probably military, uh, situational awareness, both up and down the chain of command. And then that fourth one, and the most important one, I think, is in the absence of orders or direction on the battlefield, take charge and lead. So um, those ones were, you know, if, if every, you throw out every manual you've ever read uh, and you take a breath and think about those in a, uh, a chaotic situation, um, they'll, they'll point you in the right direction. Outstanding. Um, I heard on your Rogan interview that when many of your fellow SEAL members were watching shows or gaming, you were always reading, analyzing storytellers, which I related to because that's what I did. Uh, that's what I was doing with storytelling and shows, features, just overall content creators. It wasn't just mindless fun or, or relax, relaxation. It was, it was a kind of a studying. Is that kind of what you were doing with your books? Yeah. So I've always been a reader. Um, and even before I joined the military, I was always studying warfare and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies uh, just because yeah. I knew where I was going. It didn't, I didn't wake up one morning and then just decide to be a SEAL. Um, I'd been preparing for it my yeah. whole life. Um, so I was just building on that foundation. And I always thought it was my duty to, to do that, to put in the time, energy, and effort into that study uh, to make myself the best operator, the best leader that I could possibly be downrange. So even of when course. I was downrange, I was always studying uh, after action reports from other things going on in theater, um, still reading you know, nonfiction books out there, and then throwing in every now and again, a little, little fiction as well. But uh, I very, I very rarely watched a movie, maybe once or twice during those deployments, um, and never played a video game. So all my time that we, ha if we had downtime, it was spent studying, uh, doing things that were gonna, were going to make me uh, better and more effective and more efficient on the battlefield. So um, that's always been a part of it, and really all that study, both before the military, uh, it, during my time in, and continues today. Uh, that coupled with all that fiction that I read growing up as well, like they combine at the right time and place with my experiences downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan and all those three things, the experience downrange, the feelings and emotions behind those, um, plus the reading of the fiction and the study, the nonfiction all combined at the right time and place to make its way into my novels as I transitioned from the military. So uh, I didn't really plan it like that. It was just a very natural course uh, that I took, but it ended up uh, working out in, in a way that it couldn't really have been planned better. Interesting. Very interesting. You, you talk about getting out in 2016 and that you knew you wanted to be a writer since you were a kid and you, and you've done all the studying. Um, I mean, was there ever the thought of a backup plan or if it didn't work out, this would be, if it didn't work out that the, there would be another profession or was it, Hey, I have a retirement. I can live austerely and make this work. 
No. So I, uh, it's always good to have contingency plans, uh, <laughs> sure. of course. Um, but uh, of course, coming from the military, you, you need that. Uh, none of them were very appealing. I did have backup plans, of course, just because it's important to have that, I think. Uh, yep. But at the same time, I didn't really entertain them seriously. It was just kind of like nice to haves. Um, you know, I know there are these different paths I can take, but what do I want to do? Where am, where am I going to put my time, energy, and effort right now? Um, yeah. Where am I going to devote my bandwidth? Because I only have a certain amount of it. So where am I going to put that? And for me, I'm going to put it into the book, make it the best book I can possibly make it um, and before I send it off to, to New York, so to a publishing house. So, uh, so yeah, that was really all that other stuff never really entered my mind because cause same thing with SEAL training. And it's kind of one of my life mantras is, you know, never pay attention to the odds. Cause there were certainly a lot of people that love to tell me how hard SEAL training was before I went in, yeah. um, and how, as you know, how many people fail out or, you know, hard that is like people love to tell you how hard things are to do. Um, same thing with publishing. Uh, I got the same looks when I told people I wanted to be an author that I got when I told people I wanted to be a SEAL. They look at you like you're going to grow out of it one day. Um, they kind of <laughs> pat you on the head like, that's nice. You know, kind of like telling people you're going to be an astronaut when you're a kid. You know, yeah. same thing. Like, oh, that's nice. That's cute. Um, and I didn't pay attention to any of that stuff because I didn't worry about the odds of making it through SEAL training. I just knew it was hard. That's why I was going there. Uh, and, and I knew that I had to prepare myself if I wanted to make it through the best I possibly could. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Well, you know, what? I can work out. I can climb ropes. I can. I can can do distance running. I could uh, do pull-ups. I can do sit-ups. I can do all these things that I see people doing in these videos. And what else can I do? I can study. Um, I can read these books on warfare and terrorism and insurgencies. Um, and what else can I do? I can push myself, not just in workouts, but putting on a backpack, going into the backcountry, uh, putting myself in uncomfortable situations, uh, getting out on the snowshoes and cross-country skis and backcountry, uh, and doing all those sorts of things that are difficult um, in order to prepare myself for SEAL training. Um, and same thing with, with writing. It's uh, people, you can worry about the odds of getting published by a New York publishing house, uh, the odds of becoming a New York Times bestselling author. You can worry about those things, but you know what? That's taking up bandwidth and where it should be focused is on where you want to go, whether it's writing or whatever else it's going to be, but then making whatever that product is or building out whatever the business is, um, spend that time there instead of just worrying about those odds. Because you can worry yourself or you can study how to do something um, forever and never actually take that first step and actually doing it. So um, people talk to me about books on writing and uh, you know I read a couple, but most of them weren't like how-to books. Um, they're more of the Stephen Pressfield's The Art of uh, the, the War of Art, Turning Pro, um, Do the Work, those things uh, that really talk about just sitting down and doing it. I mean, there's a reason that the, the Nike motto, just do it, is still around and people remember it um, because it is so true. Uh, that's the one Absolutely. thing you can't get away from. <laughs> if you're going to do something, you can think about it all day long, but eventually you have to sit down and do it. You have a unique way of researching your books. You actually go to the places that you're talking about. That's right. What do you, what do you learn? What are you looking for when you actually go there? Is it culture? Is it terrain? Is it ever, I mean, what, what, are, yeah. what, are, what are some of the things that you focus on? Yeah, it's all that, all of those things. And a lot of it, you don't even know until you go there. Um, so when I went to Mozambique, I had a whole list of things that I wanted to come back with information. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was language, actually. A lot of the things were like, like uh, different phrases and how to say them in these different languages over there. And I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to incorporate them or uh, how many I was going to incorporate, but I had about a page and, there, and there's a lot of different languages in in Mozambique. Um, so I had that and I wanted to know the, like, what kind of the, what the dirt was like, the rocks are like, the leaves were like, what happens like in the winter there. I got to talk to him about that. Is it a rainy season? Um, how does that, how do things change during those times? So mm -hmm. I had a lot of questions when I was over there, but I got a lot that I didn't even know 
that I was going to get. Politics? There was some politics, of course. Um, you know, the plane that I flew in on to this remote backcountry uh, hunting camp, um, you know, the boots that my uh, professional hunter was wearing, the backgrounds of my trackers, uh, that sort of thing. So there's a ton you get that I wouldn't have even known to research without going there and experiencing it and living it. Um, so that was, I mean, that's, and that's invaluable for me, especially starting out um, is to, because really the power of these books is that I take the emotions and feelings behind certain experiences downrange and I apply them to a completely fictional narrative. Well, same thing with that research. I take that research and I apply it. It's real, but I apply it to a completely fictional narrative. So the sights, the sounds, the smells, what the dirt feels like, um, what it looks like, all those sorts of things, little stories that you can incorporate that you hear from mm -hmm. somebody that's there's down there and you incorporate it into a character uh, in the novel. Um, so th those sorts of things are so important for me anyway. Um, and then I went to Siberia, well, just south of Siberia, Kamchatka Peninsula. Um, and okay. cause I always wanted to go there. I think and I saw that on a risk board. There you go. That's right. So, <laughs> so I went over there because I, I knew I had to go there because it was such an important part of the third novel of Savage Sun. And okay. I just needed to put boots on the ground. And it was crazy flying in there because most of the year you have to fly. So let's say you're flying from the West Coast of the United States. Well, first you fly to the East Coast. Then you fly to Germany or the UK. Then you fly to Moscow. Then you fly all the way across Siberia to get almost all the way back to the West Coast of the United States. Oh my gosh, it's not yeah. that far away from Alaska. Wow. So, uh, but for one month out of the year, you can fly from Anchorage. Um, and it's one flight a week. Um, so you're either going there for seven days, 14 days, you know, whatever. So it's, uh, huh. so I went there for one, just a week and it, yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, I'm playing about all these, the mosquitoes over there, crazy. Uh, I got some incredible, I worked a, and I worked some experiences over there into that third novel that uh, I think really brings it, uh, brings it to life. Very good. Very good. Um, you talked about breaking into the writing industry without an agent. How did you do that? Uh, was there a connection? Was it in a developed audience? What got you to the next step to actually be noticed by a publisher? Yeah, certainly not a developed audience because I didn't have didn't have Facebook, didn't have Instagram, didn't have Twitter, never wanted any of those things while I was in. Um, I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it didn't work. So it, it uh, and I'm really glad that it didn't happen just like, um, I guess it could happen the opposite way where somehow for some reason you have an audience on maybe social media or something. Um, yeah. and then because you have someone you can market something towards, um, then New York publishing house says, Oh, let's do something with this guy. So that was not the case. <laughs> I had no accounts, no following, no one knew anything about me. Um, and I really liked that it happened this way. Um, because I sent the book to New York and I got very lucky because I didn't, once again, I didn't study how to do this, uh, at all. Uh, which had I, I might've found out that you're supposed to get an agent. Um, and that, that's the usual path, but yeah. luckily I did not know that. So I didn't get one. And, uh, instead I sent my manuscript directly to New York because, uh, I had the door cracked open for me and someone sat next to Brad Thor at a, uh, at an event. And it was a buddy of mine from the SEAL teams. And he'd help Brad out with a couple, couple books uh, after that. And as I started to get ready to get out, he called me and said, Hey, I heard you're writing a, writing a book. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, uh, would you like to talk to Brad Thor? And I said, well, will he talk to me? I'd, I'd love that. That'd be amazing. And so <laughs> set up a, set up a time to talk and ended up talking to him for like 45 minutes or so. And he was amazing. Great. just incredible guy. And he said, you know what? Hey, I've never, he was kind of like a job interview. He wanted to know like why I wanted to, wanted to write, why I wanted to be an author, all those things. And I 
told him all the things I just told you right yeah. now in this, uh, in this conversation about wanting to do it since I grew up and loving these authors and, and all the rest of it. And, and he said, all right, he said, all right, stop talking. He's <laughs> like, uh, I've never done this to anyone before, but, uh, it, your friend told me some of the things that you did in the SEAL teams. And as a thank you for that, uh, if you write a book, uh, I'll let New York know it's coming. I'll let my publisher know it's coming. Wow. I uh, can't uh, guarantee they'll open the package. Can't guarantee they'll read one word. Definitely can't guarantee they'll like it, but I can at least let them know that it's coming. And he's like, don't call me until, <laughs> until it's done. Yeah. I'm not going to give you any more advice. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to read anything. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to give you feedback. None of that stuff. Just when you're done, give me a call. I'll let them know it's coming. And he thought, he thought that, uh, you know, may, that I wouldn't finish. Uh, yeah. yeah Cause that, that, authors get this I did, all the time. I did time. my good deed for the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, he also thought that if I did finish and I sent it to New York, that they'd read one word and be like, eh, you know, what do you want me to tell this guy? Just give him some advice, you know, just say, keep going, don't quit. Instead, uh, uh Emily Bessler, his, uh, editor publisher and Vince Flynn, when he was uh, alive, his, uh, his editor publisher, uh, read it, loved it and, uh, wanted to publish it. So I, uh, wow. yeah. So, so a couple of things there that stand out to me is that had I not, um, had the, my, my friend in the SEAL teams, the, that got out, well, I got very lucky that he sat next to Brad Thor at this dinner, but at the same time, he has to risk his reputation, his capital yeah. by, uh, introducing me by feeling comfortable enough to recommend me to, um, to Brad Thor. Um, and had I, you know, not, had I done maybe some different things in the SEAL teams or whatever, he, he wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, so you have to have that foundation. You have to have that, um, you know, that, that, that reputation, that character, of course, established, you have to do those, you have to build that foundation. And, uh, so, so I got very lucky that, uh, that he sat next to Brad, that he felt comfortable enough, uh, to recommend that, uh, that we get on the phone and talk to one another and, uh, and, and, I just feel very fortunate all the way around, but absolutely, point being, yeah. <laughs> point being, you have to do all those things, all that work along the way to uh, to build the the foundation, no matter where you want to go. You know, make sure you're just a good guy. Just make yeah, sure you're just, yeah, nothing, just be cool. Yeah, nothing about it is about uh, you know people talk about networking, and I don't you know it's just a weird thing to me. Um, so I never intentionally quote unquote networked. You know, yeah. I was just. Just me, just put in the the work in the teams. Tried to be as as good a leader as I could possibly be, um, best operator I could possibly be, um, and then same thing with the books. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just it's almost that that simple. I think when people try to network or like try to do it, it's a weird thing, and you can notice it, and it's very strange. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I feel bad saying that because some people maybe just aren't personable. Uh, you know, and might have a tough time. And so they have to put in the, uh, I don't know. It's just a strange, it's a strange thing. I don't know. There's effort. You see an effort there. You see an effort there sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't put any effort into that. It was more, more about karma networking. Yeah, I guess it's just about doing the best you can at whatever you're going to do. And that's gotcha. it. Um, that's right. Yeah. So for me, it didn't, I didn't like uh, intentionally do any sort of networking whatsoever. Gotcha. Very good. Um, how long did it take to write that, that first book? Well, and what, what, what was the process like? Yeah. So the first book uh, in general can take you as long as you want it to take um, because you have no deadlines. Um, yeah. So you can get it as good as you can possibly get it. So this is a good and a bad thing in that you can always make something better. So there are probably some outstanding novels. Some of the best novels I've ever written are probably still sitting in somebody's drawer, maybe on someone's hard drive, something like that, because they think that's not quite good enough yet. Um, mm -hmm. Like just going to spend a little more time with it. So 
when I sat down, I thought, you know, I'm going to get this as good as I can get it. Um, and I'm not going to spend 10 years making it 1% better. Um, I'm going to get it to that point where I think it's as good as I can get it without uh, the eyes of a New York publishing editor. Uh, and then I'm I'm sending it. So, and then I thought once it got there, because it never occurred to me that I might, might not work out, right? Like it never worked, never occurred to me that I might not make it through buds and all that. Never, never sure. crossed my mind that it wouldn't go right to Simon and Schuster. Uh, that they wouldn't want to publish it right away. That it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't get picked up for a uh, for a series by an A list star. Like I, I just assumed all these things were going to happen because that was <laughs> just you took the, if, you, if you believe it, you will achieve it. Approach. I guess I didn't really think of it that those terms either. I just kind of thought, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Like I'm in this print and I don't have time to think about uh, it not happening. Uh, So point being that first one took about a year and a half. um, And I got it to that point where I was like, okay, it's about as good as I can get it. Then I sent it off to probably that first one. Now I send it out to about four people, but that first one, I think I sent out to about 20 people um, Mm. to see, just get a little feedback. And I was like, okay, if, and I'm, I'm, I don't remember if it was exactly 20, it might've been 10 or 15 or something, but I was like, okay, if, one of them says something don't like something, then I'm going to discard it. Two of them, I'm going to take one quick little look and then probably toss it out. Three of them, same thing. Four, same thing. Five out of 20 say the same thing. I'm going to really look at that part and, yeah. uh, and maybe make some changes. So I looked at it. So I didn't want to like, you know, uh, just kind of go, oh, someone who didn't like this, okay, I'm going to change it. Someone doesn't like this, I'm going to change it. And just like, because that, did, that didn't make sense to me. But if a yeah. few people, you know, didn't like one thing, then I was going to take a look at it. And so there was a couple minor things that I changed and then sent it off to New York, put it in the mail and off it went. And I thought, are you, uh, are there, you married? Are you yes. married? Yep. Uh, is is your wife one of those 20? <laughs> uh, she did read it. Yes. But she okay. was not one of the ones that, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's not one of the 20, but your wife did, did yeah, read it. She does, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, my wife will not, she writes and she does not let me re- read a, a page. Not oh, a page. Nice. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not a page. She, that's hilarious. That's probably best. That's probably best. Actually. <laughs> I want to keep those things separate. You know, I might recommend that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Very good. But, Very good. Uh, but yeah, so I sent it off to New York and I was like, you know, if it, if Emily Bessler reads this and decides that she wants to put in exploding robots from outer space, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put exploding robots from outer space in here. Uh-huh. Um, and I just, I kind of took that approach to it and I was so surprised that she hardly wanted to change anything. Uh, she had three questions. One was like, Hey, would you really say this here? Would you really do this here? And one other thing I can't remember anymore, but they were so minor. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. Um, and I really, I don't think I was really nervous up until that point. Cause I was like, Oh, she's going to make it great. And then there's just these three minor little questions that weren't even changes. They were just questions and, uh, huh. you know, morph up a couple of sentences, uh, to fall more in line with, uh, with the character and the theme of the novel. But, Interesting. Uh, so yeah, so it didn't really change much and that's, uh, it's continued to be that way through these, uh, the, the next few as well. So, um, are you, are you still juggling editing one book while writing another? Yeah. Uh, it's to me, crazy. that seems that seems tough because that's like editing two projects, two 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 films at the same time. Yeah, now there's a third thing going on. So now there's the scripts for the Amazon series. Um, so you have those going also at the same time. So there's a lot a lot to juggle. Uh, Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Sincerely appreciate it. And it was, what's crazy about that is that I pictured Chris Pratt in the role as I was writing, which is an. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask yeah. you how, how did you get his attention. 
Well, I, once again, I stumbled into it. Um, and as I was writing, it was weird because you wouldn't necessarily, especially back then. So I was writing this in, I might mess up a date by a year or two because sure. <laughs> things are a little hazy right now because I'm in the middle of all these edits. But let's say, I think December 20, December 2014, I think maybe I started like started down the path. Um, certainly during my last year in the military, um, okay. I was, I was working on it and he was in, he's in parks and rec at the time, uh, I think, or just finishing that maybe. And, and so he wasn't known as an action star, uh, wasn't known, you know, for the serious drama type stuff, but I always thought of, Hey, so this was before Jurassic park. This is before Jurassic park, before guardians of the galaxy. Uh, wow. he had a small role in zero dark 30. Um, and I think that was kind of his first like serious role, very small, very small yeah. role. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you know what, you know, Tom Hanks in the eighties, we had bosom buddies. We had, uh, the burbs, uh, you had, <laughs> you know, Turner and Hooch, uh, you had all these, you know, comedies. And then all of a sudden he takes a risk with Philadelphia in the early nineties. And yeah. then from then on, he can write his own ticket. And I was kind of thinking like, who is this generation's, you know, guy like that? Cause I need this character to be likable because he is going to do some things that, uh, that, uh, that the audience is going to need to forgive him for. The audience is going to have to want him to succeed because he's a likable person. And I was like, man, Chris Pratt is a likable guy. He is awesome. He is funny. Um, and, uh, and I know he'd done the zero dark 30 thing. So in my mind, I was just like, Oh, that'd be a great guy uh, to do this. And, you know, I didn't think much more of it than that. Um, because also if you read some of these books, they say, uh, don't picture somebody playing your character as you're writing. Um, but as a child of the eighties, that was next to impossible. So sure. I pictured Chris Pratt and then right before the book came out, you know, years later. So this is now three years later two at least two and a half years later, whatever. I get a call out of the blue from an old buddy of mine from the SEAL teams and hadn't talked to him for, for years. And, uh, he's like, Hey, how's it going? And, uh, we started talking and he said, Hey, I, I heard you, uh, you wrote a book and I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months and I can send you an early copy called a galley. I can send one of those out to you. And he's yeah. like, well, Hey, I always wanted to call you and say, thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams. And, um, I was kind of thinking like, what did I do? And he said, sure. the only person that sat me down in your office as I was getting ready to get out and talk to me about transition. You introduced me to people in the private sector. Uh, you're the only person that took time out to do that for me. And I was like, Oh, Hey, no problem. Is he and, in the private sector now? What's yep. it? Who is it? Yep, absolutely. So his name is Jared Shaw. I'm allowed to say his name now. There you um, go. There he's you very. Go. <laughs> he likes to stay. He likes to keep a low profile. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking him out of the shadows. Um, and he and he's like, hey, uh, I'd like to give one to this book to a friend of mine. Do you mind? I'm like, no. Let me send you. I'll send you two. One for you. One for your friend. And I'm like, hey, who is it by the way? He said, Chris Pratt. <laughs> I was like, oh, interesting. That's crazy. So, yeah. So he gave it to Chris, and Chris read it on a on a flight to uh, to London for I think for some of the Jurassic Park things. And and uh, next thing you know, uh, a week or so later, I'm getting the call that says he wants to option it for a uh, film or a series. So uh, off we went to the races. Wow! Like personally, he 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 optioned it. Yep, exactly. Personally. So that's cool. Yeah. Crazy. And I pictured Anton Fuqua directing it. He did Tears of the Sun, did uh, Equalizer, did Magnificent Seven, uh, yeah. got an Academy Award um, So uh, for Training Day. 
and and he wanted it too um, at the same time, and so it ended up uh, they're collaborating together on it. So Anton Fuqua is directing, and Chris Pratt is starring, and uh, yeah, we have a great great uh, team of of writers working on the scripts, and I'm an advisor on those, so I get to to see them and give my uh, take my red pen out and jump on calls and do the rest of it. So I'm learning a ton about screenwriting, and uh, the, the scripts are fantastic. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that when a, when a writer signs over a book for a series or movies the level of participation seems to be negotiated, right? Like some just sign it over and say, have fun. Some are involved as, as advisors, but not, but not, but they're not the end all be all, uh, maker decision maker, like George RR R. Martin was with game of Thrones. Right. Um, and my wife was complaining about the writing in 50 shades of gray. Okay. <laughs> Take that for what it is. But I guess in that contract, the writer insisted that the script was exactly the, to be the same wording as the book. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I would not have done that. Is there a concession for cold, hard cash? Is there a balance there? What do you, okay. What did you prefer? Yeah. So I was not negotiating from a position of strength Sure. Um, with one novel that's not even out yet. So, no platform, yeah. zero followers on anything. Um, so complete unknown. You're, it's your first go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I didn't really have much to say about any of that sort of thing. Um, but in my mind, just having studied this for so long and seeing so many different books turn into movies uh, and notice what I liked, what I didn't like about that, um, things that worked, things that didn't. Like I've been a student of that my whole life sure. as well. So yeah. um, I, I so I was not married to keeping the book exactly the same for film. It's a different medium yeah. and therefore it needs to be told in a different way. Um, so I, I completely understand that. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't want it to be uh, the, to the letter of the book because you're telling the story totally different. So, um, but point being, yeah, if you have a body of work, over years, like let's say you're a Daniel Silva uh, with a Gabriel Alon series, which is uh, that series is 20 um, books long, I think now. Uh, he had three books previous to that with different characters. Mm. Um, but if you have a body of work like that, now you're negotiating from a position of strength because you're selling an entire universe um, yeah. to, to Hollywood. Are all your books in, in one universe? Are you building yes. a universe with shared canon history? Okay. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. But uh, but at the time, there was only, there was nothing. There was, there <laughs> was the one book. Yeah, there was one book and it hadn't even been published yet. Um, so That's incredible. You got an option for a show before you, the book even got published. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So you could hold on. But for me, I'm like, you know what? The exact person that I wanted to star in this wants to option it. The exact director that I wanted to direct it wants it. Um, that's I, serendipity. I, that's karma. Yeah, that's go that's, with that's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> go with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not going to be not going to be greedy here. So, uh, so yeah. So anyway, that's kind of so it can work out a different. So I think every deal is different. I would think so, okay. I, but I'm not positive. But I, I think that every deal is different. And if you have this body of work, if you have um, a dedicated readership already, then you can kind of you're negotiating from a position you're, of strength at that point. You're and you're a little more closely aligned, a little more close to home on that one. Than, well you get than, to say, hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, sell you this universe unless uh, I am the writer, I am the this, I am the that, you do this, yeah. you can add some things. For me there was none of that. <laughs> I'm just like thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, talk to me about writing as a profession. I'm sure and because I'm sure someone clicked on this episode because it said author. The writing profession, much like music has changed drastically within the past decade due to due to digital media. Um, for the veterans that are getting out now and want to start writing as a profession, what would your advice be to them? Yeah, first, not to worry about anything at the periphery. So, meaning you have to have that product, um, and it's, so it's not just writing; it's it's anything, uh, and that has to be 
good. It has to be as good as you can make it. So before worrying about if you're going to get published, if you should self-publish, um, if uh, you should build up an audience, if you should, how you're going to market, you know what, that is all, all those four things I just mentioned. And I'm sure there's like 10, 15, 20 other things you could be yeah. worrying about we, that time is, was not spent making the product as good as it could possibly be. So before you worry about any of that, get the best book you possibly can. Um, so that is, that would be my advice. Focus on the content. Focus on that book. Yeah, exactly. You have to focus on that book. You have to get that thing as good as you can possibly get it. Uh, now you can take a breath. And during that time that you're writing for things are probably, you know, changing as you've been, uh, writing that. So, um, the, so there'll be things out there that were, are available to you that weren't available five years ago. Yeah. Certainly not available 20 years ago. Definitely not available 30 years ago. Um, in that before, let's say in the 70s, 80s, mid 90s, you had to depend on your publisher to do most everything. Yeah. Um, you had to depend on that publicist. Um, and guess what? You're not the only author that Simon & Schuster has. Um, and they have to pay those bills. Just like with movies, there are a few movies out there, like the Avengers makes the movie, makes all the money for all those other movies that don't make money. Um, so, and that's kind of how publishing works as well. There's a few books at the top that uh, make the money for everybody else um, and allow those other books to really be published. So it's very rare for a book to make back, uh, to, to make money on a book. And luckily mine all did. Mine did right away. So mine was kind of an anomaly. Um, yeah. And most people just think of the, what really are outliers, um, like Game of Thrones, like Fifty Shades of Grey, like yeah. Twilight. Um, yeah. So those, those types of things, those are the outliers, but those are the ones that people are like, oh, that's the norm. That's not the norm. No, that's, that's <laughs> those like the, all books paid for everyone else's. That's like the <laughs> half of the 1% that you, that you see. Exactly. Exactly. But all that money that those bring in, those pay for all those other books out there that aren't that that, that didn't make back their money. So same things with with movies. The ones they're taking a chance on. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so point being, so after you have that book as good as you can possibly get it, that's the time to then take a breath and figure out those next steps. I think if you tried, and you know, this is just me, right? So I, I, yeah, it could be different for everybody else. But for for but if you're spending time trying to build up an audience or trying to do all these other things uh, or worried about all these other things, uh, I don't think that's time well spent because that book has got to be the best it can be. So that would be my advice to do that. And then take advantage of some of these things that weren't available to authors out there yeah. 30 years ago. So all that, all that marketing, guess what you can do? You can build up, you can build your own platform. If you, it's what if CNN or, or Fox or whatever is not having you on one of their shows, guess what you can yeah. do? You can build your own. You can do a podcast. You can do, you can have a social media presence. And what's important about those things, I think, is to provide something of value. So before I post anything, before I do anything like that, I think, hey, am I going to waste somebody's time? Time by posting this, um, like I want to add value to someone's day with everything that I do. Um, and because if you're doing that, then when it comes time for that book to come out, guess what? You've added a year of value um, to someone else's life um, based off, you know, whatever it is, your study, uh, your perspective, your experience, whatever that may be. Um, and so when the time comes for your book to come out, well, there you go. That's your, there's your, your return. That makes logical sense. Cause if, if, if you can say, Hey, for, in 30 seconds, this guy can make me laugh or, or make me think deep or whatever. Imagine what he did with a year's worth of effort into something. Yeah. 
and it's really about building trust with an audience. So it's really about building that relationship with uh, with an audience. And you can do that today. You couldn't have done that in 1995 and 1985 and 1975. But you know what? You can do it today. But you can also screw it up today. Uh, you can do the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. You can uh, you can you know break that trust. You can post stupid things um, that aren't adding value to someone's day. And if you're not adding value to someone's day, guess what? Why would they follow you? Why would they buy your next book? Why would they continue to engage with you if you're being a, a negative input uh, in their life? So so for me, that's important. Um, you know, and other people might have different different views on it, but um, that's just my. That's my take. Yeah, no, I definitely. It, it makes logical sense to me. I think it's hilarious that you have a series called Negative Reviews. Because <laughs> on Born the Battle, we still respond to on air to any reviews on Apple Podcasts, good or bad. Um, and you say, you know, don't spend much time on them, but it's human nature, which is completely true. Uh, is there a good review or a bad review? that sticks out to you as of like today, or you can just show an example of each, either one. Hilarious. So I just, I was about to post one um, today, actually, and I, I was just kind of rethinking it because I have a lot to, to do. So I was, might hold off till next week. Oh, wow. um, but uh, yeah, I did, I did a recording the other day um, uh, of just two because I, I was kind of scrolling through whatever and I saw two new ones and I'm like, oh, these are, these are fantastic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and pulled them out and, and uh, gosh, uh, one was just someone saying that he loved the book. It was awesome, but uh, he didn't like the, the gear. So one star. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. That's what the gear I would use. One star. Yeah. No, he even said he has most of the gear. So, and then, uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. And then another person was talking about, uh, how they, they did not like that there were a lot of veterans getting into quote unquote the writing game based on their celebrity status. And I was like, well, we did not, as we just talked about in this conversation, you didn't have that. Did not have anything. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I had zero. Um, so it was all based on the, on the book on the writing. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So he did not <laughs> like that. He had some, just some funny, total, you know, anyway, you have to, you kind of got to laugh at it. And, and then there's some where, you know, you get the one star cause you know, it arrives and it arrived a day late from Amazon and they give you one star and you're like, oh, bro, come on, <laughs> Amazon, help me out here. <laughs> it's not healthy. Yeah. Like the cover was ripped or it arrived without a cover from like Barnes and Noble. And you're like, oh, and you get a one Things star. Things that, that you can't control. Yeah. You know, and every author gets those, <laughs> every single author gets things like that. Um, so there's good and bad to all this, right? So the, yeah. the, uh, the bad part is that crazy people, uh, there are no barriers. And like, let's say in 1985, <laughs> if someone wrote a crazy letter to uh, a magazine or a newspaper letter to the editor, guess what? It's to the editor. So the editor reads it and it's like, wow, this person is crazy. We're not putting this, <laughs> we're not doing this. There's, there was a barrier there. Um, but at the same time, you couldn't engage with that audience. I think it's a great way to, 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 to engage with your audience, what you're doing, you know, or responding to reviews. <laughs> yeah. And that was just kind of a fun kind of thing to do. Cause I like to turn po uh, negatives into positives as best I can. And, uh, so anyway, it's kind of, sure. kind of a fun, fun way to, to do it. And, uh, yeah, uh, but I appreciate, you know, every review is, it, it's kind of, it's great, you know, cause it, Absolutely. uh, yeah, it's, there's, the, there's a connection there. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Jack, what's, uh, what's one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? Oh, geez. One thing that I learned in a service. And I know you probably learned many things, but if you were to pick one out. Yeah. You know, I don't know where this, where, where this, where I came to this realization. I don't know if it was just came, I didn't just wake up with it one day, but I think I always knew it and always, um, it was always a part of me, but I didn't really put words to it till much later. Um, probably during my last two deployments. Um, but it was, it's all about building trust, uh, not just so building trust with 
the guys below you in the chain of command and above you in the chain of command um, and taking every opportunity, um, every engagement, every interaction is an opportunity to build that trust. So whether you're passing somebody in the hallway uh, or you're giving a brief or uh, the guys are going out to run the obstacle course uh, or you're going to the range um, or whatever, like all of these are opportunities to engage and build trust. And much like we just talked about, they're all, you can also lose that trust if you mess it up. Um, like if you get out there and you're doing a, a log PT or you're running, you know, doing some sort of a team thing, whatever, uh, you're not pulling your weight or you're, you know, that, Hey, guess what? You're just, you're losing some credibility right there. Um, so what do you have to do? You've got to be in shape. You got to be there and out front. Um, and if you're not the fastest, well, you got to be up there <laughs> near the top. If you're not, yeah. the, if you're not, if you're not first, same thing on the range, you know, uh, especially as you're, as a leader, you know, if you're not the best shot out there, well, you better be up there near the top. Sure. Um, the guys need to be looking at you as something that, uh, that, that, that they aspire to be one day. Um, but then for me, it was important to, for the guys to also know that I wanted them to be better than I was. Um, I wanted them, I wanted them to be able to do it better than I did it for them. And that means yeah. sharing some of the things that, uh, that you could do better. So sharing, uh, successes, sharing failures, uh, get pushing that six, that, uh, uh, credit down to the guys, um, uh, for anything, uh, and then taking responsibility for the failures. Uh, so all those, all those things, but it comes back to trust uh, and same thing up the chain of command. Um, every interaction with those above you, they have to look at you and be like, okay, I don't need to worry about this guy um, because of an interaction they had because of a brief, because of whatever it is. Um, and they're going to focus their attention maybe on someone that needs it. Uh, mm. And they're going to give you that freedom, uh, freedom of maneuver because they trust you. Um, so, so it's really about building trust and same thing today. And it's about building trust with that audience, trust with that readership. Um, and, uh, so, so that's, yeah, that'd be the, and I don't think if I learned it in service, it was just a part of upbringing or, but being able to articulate it as giving it the credit, the, giving it the credence, giving it that attention and just identifying, oh, the tr trust is the most important part of leadership. Um, and it's the most important part of building a brand, no matter what it is, is that trust with uh, the people that are buying your product that are engaging with you. Outstanding. Is there a veteran nonprofit or individual who you've worked with or had experience with who you'd like to mention? Yeah. So there's so many, I mean, there's so many, um, foundations out there, organizations out there, yes. um, that are doing work with veterans. It's almost overwhelming. So the ones I to support are ones that I have touch points with either they did, uh, I was involved with them personally or a dear friend of mine, um, was involved with them personally, or they helped a friend of mine or something like that. Yeah. So there, it can't just be that they have a good website. Um, and that's all the thought that I gave to it type thing. Um, so there has to be a personal touch point. So, uh, rescue 22 is an amazing one, uh, started by a friend of mine from the, uh, canine program in the seal teams. And they provide fully trained service and support dogs to, to veterans dealing with, uh, the emotional and physical trauma of the battlefield. So, um, people dealing with PTSD, dealing with, uh, uh, with TBI, um, people missing arms and legs, you know, all that, yeah. they do some amazing work with these dogs. Uh, and it's absolutely incredible. So, uh, rescue 22 is, mm. uh, is definitely one that, uh, is at the, the top of my list, but there's some great other great ones out there as well. And actually on my, my website, if people click on the gear portion of my website, um, there's a, uh, there's some merchandise there and hundred percent of those proceeds go to the veteran or focus organizations that are listed. Did you, did you just say a hundred percent? 
Yep. All of it. All of it. I wanted that to be kind of my way to, to give back. And I always felt a little strange about just throwing a t-shirt up there. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. as I started down this path and started to, you know, get some sort of a following or whatever, I, I thought, you know, I want to do something a little, little different here. And, uh, so a hundred percent of all the, the proceeds go to, to those veteran focused organizations. There's like, and I try to support veteran, um, with the, with the merch, uh, veteran, uh, businesses as much as I can. I mean, sometimes you can't, you know, like, but, uh, as much as I can, um, like direct action USA, they make these awesome bookmarks that have these five, five, six rounds on them. And so I have that on there. I have my buddy Eli Crane from bottle breacher, um, that has these, these, these bottle openers made out of 50 cal rounds and, uh, yes. and grenades and all that. So, um, I have that stuff on there and then, you know, there's hats and t-shirts and, and all the rest of it. So, but yeah, all the proceeds go to, um, veteran focused organizations and, and they're listed on the site there. And there uh, each one of those is one that I have a personal touch point with. Very good. Very good. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. It, is there anything else, Jack, that I, that I've missed or, or didn't ask that you think is important to share? I mean, since this is, uh, you know, the audience is who I think it, it is um, for veterans. I would say that, you know, don't let anyone discourage you as you're getting out. You know, you hear a lot about you know, how hard a transition is, um, how difficult it is to make that transition from the military to the private sector. Um, and, you know, I'd say don't spend too much time worried about that. Um, because once again, that's bandwidth focused on worrying, um, you know, life's about transition. It doesn't have to be leaving the military for the private sector. People in the private sector switch jobs. Um, that's a transition. Uh, people get divorced. That's a transition. Um, horrible things happen, uh, in life. Uh, it doesn't have just to mill people in the military and you know what you adapt and you, you move forward. Um, so the transition, uh, I, I wouldn't get too wrapped, uh, you know, around the axle about mm. worrying about that transition. Um, it's really about identifying that next mission in life. Um, and really the second novel, I mean, it's a, it's a political thriller, but it's about transitions. It's about redemption. Um, and I got to incorporate my experience with transitioning from the military to my protagonist who was going through a life transition as well. Um, so it's really about identifying that next mission in life because you're not going to recreate what you had in the military. Like that's just a given. I've seen that over and over again. People mm -hmm. try to, mm -hmm. uh, to figure out how are they going to get a team environment like they had in the military on the outside. Uh, then they're disappointed when that doesn't happen. Well, guess what? It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it can, <laughs> it's, it's a different deal. Uh, and of course, my experience is on a very thin slice of the military, which is special operations. Um, so take all, <laughs> take everything I say with a grain of salt. Sure. But, uh, it's, but yeah, this is your it, experience. It, this is my, yeah, exactly. And I saw so many people that had a hard time uh, with that. Um, so when I got out, I made the decision to make a clean break. Because uh, I saw so many people that just kind of couldn't leave that last life behind. Yeah. So I wanted to make a clean transition. So uh, kind of a uh, physical and a psychological um, break with the military, a new chapter. You know, I wanted to turn that page. So, you know, we moved out of Coronado, California, where we finished up our time in the military. And my family, we moved to, to, the, to the mountains in, in Park City, Utah to raise our kids in a ski town. Um, and I think that was uh, important because we're not going to the same, dropping the kids off at the same school where uh, our, our friends who are still uh, in the teams are dropping their kids off. You're not going to the same bars. You're not going to the same restaurants. You're not in the grocery store. It's just not a constant presence in your life all the time. So it's a building block. Like it was something that you did for me. I was a seal. I'm not a seal anymore. Um, it, but it provides a certain 
foundation upon which to build. Um, So that's what I'm doing. I'm moving forward in life. So I would say that focus forward. Don't look back too much other than to build from that foundation. Take the good parts of it. Um, So like Bruce Lee said, take what's useful, discard what's useless uh, and move forward. But identifying that next mission in life, that next passion in life, uh, I think that's a vital uh, importance as you move forward transitioning from military service. need a home, they can get a home loan. If they need education, they can get education. If they were hurt in service, we pay compensation. If you weren't hurt in service, but you fell on hard times, we give you pension. There's just an array of benefits out there for veterans. And we really want to just make sure that all the veterans know what's out there. Choose VA today. For more information, visit va.gov or call 1-855-948-2311. I want to thank Jack and his team for reaching out, taking the time to tell his story here on Born the Battle. You can find more about Jack Carr at officialjackcar.com. Car with a C. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week are all veterans who served in Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. As I said at the beginning, this month is the 30th anniversary where the U.S. joined a coalition to push out or form the coalition to push out Saddam Hussein's forces in Kuwait. Thank you to the 2.2 million who served in the era and to the almost 700,000 who deployed. And we honor the over 620,000 of those from that era that are no longer with us. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcasting app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, Pinterest, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we die another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raiding down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner Bullets fly to night brain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one